Oh, hello. This is the Upbird Download from the Australian National Academy of Music. I'm Luke Carbon. And I am Kenny Keppel. This is episode three, and today we're going to dive into the deep, dirty, murky waters of tradition and what that means in classical music these days. And I feel like I'm back on my high school debating team, but this is the Oxford English Dictionary definition of the word tradition. The transmission of customs or beliefs from generation to generation, or the fact of being passed on in this way. Now, I think that's kind of interesting to think about within the realm of classical music, don't you? Yeah. I was having a chat to this trumpet player over the weekend who told me that there's this one, I can't for the life remember the name of this trumpet player, but back in the 14th or 15th century, this trumpet player, and he, uh, he was hanging out with one of the heavies in Europe who had on his wall the lineage from himself back hundreds of hundreds of years, teacher through teacher, to this you know, godlike trumpet player they all revere. I think that's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Which is fantastic, right? Because it's like a family tree in a way of knowledge and of, and of culture and of tradition. But at what point is that um, problematic? <laughs> well, I mean, it's problematic in that we get so far away from the original masters, so to speak, um, that it becomes very difficult to hold those traditions in strong regard because as the centuries roll on, the tradition gets less and less powerful. That's right. And in fact, our interview guest this week, the Scottish pianist and musicologist Roy Howitt, who's a giant in his field and in many fields, um, he's got a lot of interesting things to talk about with tradition because he's uh, pissed off a lot of people in Paris, especially the way he's um, chosen to eschew the tradition of, say, the French piano repertoire. Yeah, that's right. Um, Hey, let's talk about audiences for a second when we're talking about tradition. Well, there was a study in 2010 by the Australian Bureau of Statistics and what they found was that the largest proportion of classical concert goers are aged between 65 and 74. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, no one's surprised about that. It's one of the oldest. Um, it's one of the oldest tropes against classical music that it's always been dying. They reckon Beethoven is going to kill classical music, and they reckon that the radio is going to kill classical music, and they reckon that the internet is going to kill classical music. And we're still here. We're talking about it right now. And even if we've managed to hold on to some of the um, older traditions of the of the concert hall of the past, we're, mm. we're, we're still keeping things. Uh, well, to my ears, kind of fresh. Although it's interesting, this thing about concert goers being older, right? I, I was doing this um, this research recently where they talked about older people being more past-oriented, right? Like people who are young, they're, they're looking towards the future. People who are older are sort of looking back at the past, yeah. which goes, to my mind, some way to explaining some of the things like not clapping between movements and wearing tailcoats, white ties to concerts. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember reading this article that sort of had a list. It was like BuzzFeed or something. Right. So proper journalistic integrity and all <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, and they listed out. It was one of those satirical articles about how classical music is dying and the things that we should do to stop it from dying. And it was like, stop wearing those ridiculous clothes, but stick to the traditions at the same time. And That's it was like, right. That's right. Well, I think of the modern orchestras are caught in this weird catch twenty two of you have to respect the tradition, otherwise you're not a real orchestra. You're not. You know. But then you have to keep up with you know trying to be relevant to the times and and all of that. And I mean, yeah, there's kind of this fine line between being relevant as a as a classical music institution and trying too hard to be relevant um where it just comes off it comes across as contrived do do you see that like you're you're a classical musician and you're young and you're hip and you're like in the scene like what do you see i mean i don't personally have a problem with it but a lot of people you'll hear saying oh you know these orchestras they shouldn't be playing like film music they shouldn't be you know doing indiana jones uh, raiders of the lost ark along to you know the film 
But then you've also got people who are saying they, they shouldn't just be playing um, Beethoven and Brahms. And That's Mark. right. And th- and then there's other people who are saying they should be doing more new music um, as opposed to you know rehashing all of the old romantic symphonies. But every orchestra in the world, every professional orchestra in the world is going through these, these yeah, problems. Yeah, that's right. And you've got to sort of, it's just, it's just a balance. I mean, you can't keep one group of people happy. I think they're getting, well, I say they, we're getting more savvy with that. I mean, thinking of the MSO Beerhoven projects, for yeah, instance. Yeah, that's right. Where they, what, so what's the, what's the premise behind Beerhoven? Look, I've never been to one of these myself, but look, from what I understand, they play sort of chamber music and solo music, not like large-scale orchestral stuff, but in beer halls and people can have a drink. And it, that's not within the classical tradition, really, insofar as it's um, it's not rehashing the works of the old masters. Or not rehashing, but paying homage to it, right? But it is within the tradition of innovation, which has always been through Western classical music. Yeah. And all, all Western music. I mean, jazz is a tradition of innovation, as is like lots of rock and pop forms. Yeah, you're totally right in that, like, Jazz was born out of innovation. Pop, our pop music of today is born out of innovation as well. Although the thing with pop music is that everyone tends to, you know, innovate in the same direction. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or like one person innovates and then everyone else just sort of copies that sound. Yeah, but it's not like you didn't get that in classical music either. Well, exactly right. Like that's that's how the evolution from baroque to classical to romantic to modern day, you know, serialism. Um, <laughs> got to that. That's how that sort of got to happen. And so now, I don't know. Are we are we kind of directionless now? Do we have too much too many traditions? Do you reckon? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, that's why I asked it, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, maybe we do. I mean, think back to like when the Second Viennese School started being recognised as the Second Viennese School. Like, not everyone was on board with that. You won't get orchestras, well, even today in in Australia, playing that much Schoenberg. What was it? Yeah, what was it the Roy said? He, something about like we spent cent- we spent a whole century alienating audiences, and now we have to reclaim them. Yeah, he said that in an interview um, in two thousand seven, I think. Oh, good. I thought you were referring to the interview that we haven't done yet. Wink, wink. Oh, wait. Do, do, did I mention that in the interview that we haven't done yet? Uh, I don't think you did. Well, maybe I'll just say that again. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's, this is kind of like fourth wall stuff. This is good. Hello. <laughs> Interaction. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> text in at 04. Maybe we should get a live text machine thing. Yeah, we should. No, but this isn't radio. This is a podcast. We're talking about this way too long. Hey, yeah. let's, let's, let's talk about um, the good bits of innovation. We've got some stuff here. Yeah, I probably want to tie this into like how our innovations are helping tradition become relevant. Like, for example, there was an article... A little while ago, um, about how the Toronto Symphony Orchestra created a visual infographic for their program booklets about the structure of the symphony and like how to listen to it. And it's even for someone who doesn't read music because they've just they they haven't put musical notation and they've just put like a shape of the of the phrase or the or the the melody. Um, that's great because like that's not condescending at all. I don't think. And no, yeah, it allows people who don't have like complete musical fluency in terms of their own education to, yeah, yeah. to engage with the music. That's great. I think that makes it entirely more enjoyable than reading a paragraph about the first theme is a florid, beautiful, flowing melody, which is then accompanied by the blah, blah, blah section. Not that we should bag that entirely because that has its place as well. I know, but it's, it's I, I think, v- visual visual stimulation and and... Oral stimulation go very much hand in hand. Reading the words about it 
don't, it, I don't for me that doesn't quite quite do it what was that thing um i can't remember who said it like uh, uh reading about music is like dancing about architecture <laughs> yeah i guess so like you just have to get in and listen to it and that's the only way yeah like, that's right you can't just we can't sit around and talk about it like we are right now you mean oh <laughs> damn that's damn yeah okay let's, let's move on <laughs> from that look classical music is in a <laughs> A decent shape right now, Australia and and, and globally. Like, I think in Australia, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say globally. I don't have enough. Well, no. I mean, look, you've got a you. <laughs> the globe does include a lot of countries that don't even have a tradition of classical music very much. I mean, it, it all stemmed really from Europe, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which which had some fairly dangerous traditions of its like, own. How did classical music even get to Australia? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. Um, <laughs> I found this on Australia.gov.au. They've got a little paragraph here about traditional Western style music was brought to Australia with the first fleet, Captain Arthur Phillips' fleet, comprising eleven ships, which established the British colony of Australia in 1788. Western, mu- Western music in Australia has tended to follow European traditions. That's and, really and interesting. That's the truth. Luckily, though, we've managed to steer clear of the European traditions of not employing anyone other than, you know, white men in orchestras. Yeah, thankfully, that tradition has changed because for, for those who don't know, um, classical, or- well, orchestras used to only employ men. Um, and it's only until very recently that that sort of changed and yeah, like far too late in the 20th century did that change. It in, seems like that, mm, yeah. In certain unnamed large orchestras. Yeah. <laughs> so as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, last week we talked to Roy Howitt, uh, who was directing our anim musicians in a program of Gabriel Flore's music. So let's have a little listen about what he had to say about the idea of tradition. <laughs> Well, I'm Roy Howitt. Uh, I'm visiting Annam in residence for the week, something I've done o- over the years on several occasions, usually associated with, with some particular repertoire project I perform, but also do a lot of research, on mostly on repertoire I play. I'll go and look through manuscripts, make new editions of it, sometimes write a book about it or, or articles are about it. And then I play it, and of course I play it differently because of what I found out. Mm. And that's really the brief for for my work at Annam to engage with the musicians here, work with them, perform with them, but also bring in what I know about the background of the music. So this episode we're talking a little bit about the idea of tradition and what place tradition has in our culture of Western classical music. Um, so what is, it's a very open-ended question, but what does tradition mean for you in this sort of line of work? It's, it can be double-edged. And, well, in any music, every kind of music anywhere over the world is tradition and depends on tradition, and it's always changing as well, particularly in music that's not notated, mostly non-European music mm. or jazz or folk idioms as well. In this music, in Western music, we know that any practitioners know that there are dangers to tradition, that often what's called tradition is a, it can be a bag of accumulated bad habits. Mm. You know, so, well, so I, you know, it'll be so-and-so learned <laughs> like from that. so-and-so, who learned from so-and-so, who knew so-and-so, who, who, who knew somebody who knew the composer. Yeah. And at each stage you can get bad habits and corruptions creeping in. But also, <laughs> if you pick your people carefully, 
you can get some amazingly good stuff. Yeah. Uh, I was very lucky. I think I'm lucky to be in my generation to have caught, as a student, a lot of people who knew the composers whose music particularly interests me, like yeah. Debussy, Fauré, Ravel. And I did seek him out, and I was very lucky to find somebody like Vlado Perlimuta, for example, and Jacques Fevre. Both of them had worked closely with Ravel, and both of them were very intelligent, really brainy musicians who were great instinctive musicians, but made it their business to soak up from the composers how they wanted their music played, to play it that way and to pass on everything that the composers had told them. Mm. So they would, they would listen to me, and I remember the way either of them would take me right through a piece and say, Ravel or Fourier, where it was particularly wanted in this piece and didn't want that to be done. And not just saying, don't do it, but you can see very quickly why they wanted what, and it makes sense of what they've written on the page. When I knew we were going to do this interview, I, I went for a bit of a dig in, in my master's thesis, and, and I've used you a couple of times, uh, you know, you being the esteemed musicologist you are. And there's this quote here that, um, from you from 1995 in a John Rink uh, book. The performer who ignores or overrides a composer's indication simply because I feel it this way is often no better than the obedient dullard who merely shelters behind the notation. And so there's some links, I guess, between what you've just said in, in, and, um, and, and that quote in that um, if you... If you just follow what the composer wrote out as, as without personal inflection, that can be a dangerous thing. Do you have any comment on that? Yes, absolutely. It, the, the reason scores are marked up by composers, and this is our Western musical tradition where music is notated, mm. unlike many others, yeah. is that they're trying to tell us how, best, how to get the best out of the music. So all these phrasings, these articulation marks. But of course, anything in musical notation can mean different things. Musical notation is a sort of flux, apart from, apart from the pitches, which at least assure pitches relative to one another. But apart from that, a phrase mark, a crescendo, forte piano can mean so many different things according to context. And that's where having a bit of reliable tra- tradition, somebody who worked well with a composer and can show you how to do things, for example, with Perlmutter, rebalancing the way your hands balance when you're playing the music, you can find out how to make a forte in that music that's not shrill, that's Mm. a nice full orchestral sound, Mm. or how to shape crescendos. I've been finding out a lot about that from looking at the composer's manuscripts, the way they're trying to show you that when it says crescendo, it it doesn't mean sort of get louder without thinking, but it's aiming somewhere, and how fast do you do how much you wait until the last bar of the crescendo the composers have ways of showing us that and once you've spotted them you recognize things on the page and think i know what they're meaning by that and try it and of course it's every time it's trying if it doesn't work then we have to think again the project you're doing here at anim is an all foray project and uh, foray is one of the composers of whom you've made you know uh, quite authoritative editions um, are we using your editions in this project? We are mostly. Um, I haven't done absolutely all the pieces in, that we're performing tonight, but I've done the cello elegy, the flute fantaisie. The, I haven't done the trio, but I have been through all the source material for it, and I have a lot of corrections in the finale, particularly from a manuscript, most of which have never appeared in any edition. So that interests me. So it's my own private editing for that. But above all, the... Oh, the Dolly Suite, of course, um, were working from what I found there and put into a Peter's edition. And I was lucky enough, my, being my generation, to get to know Dolly herself when she was very ancient, 
but she still had, you know, she, all the lights were on and she, she noticed absolutely everything. So I got to play it to her a few times and got many family reminiscences from her about her childhood with Foray and Debussy. Um, and then the, the big work that's finishing tonight's programme is his first quintet. And that for me is one of the biggest discoveries of my life because it was a piece, it's a work that had been, had fallen into complete neglect. If you asked people about it, musicians, they would say, oh, I've never played that one. Was there a quintet? I didn't know. And then others would say, oh, I know about that, but it's a failure, it's not a good piece. And when I was first asked to edit it, it was a commission I got. I listened to one or two performances. I had never performed it. And I thought, this does sound dreary. Something's wrong here. What's up? I thought, well, I need to to dig here and I've got to do the job anyway and do the best I can. Went through the the sources, found manuscript parts used in the original performance. And as I was reading the music off that, I thought, this shouldn't sound boring. It sounds interesting to me. And I thought, well, what... What's the difference between what I'm hearing from reading it and what I'm hearing in performances? And gradually, from there, I started tracking down where there were corruptions in, the, in what was printed. It was mostly the tempi that were, that were printed in the old edition were disastrous. The, the mm. piece was completely unworkable. It wasn't completely obvious um, because of ambiguities in the tempo instructions, like musical notation can mean so many things, and if you applied it to the wrong part, if you applied it to the piano's figurations instead of to the string lines, for example, you would go off at a wrong tempo that might seem all right for two bars if you didn't know the piece. Once you were a minute into the piece, you'd be starting to look around you. Once you were two minutes in, you'd be thinking, can I get out of here? But sort that out, and then the piece suddenly came to life. And yes, he was a good composer. He knew what he was doing. It's a great piece. Um... With these sort of with these new editions and with you going back to look at manuscripts and correct um, any editing errors or to sort of convey the composer's what you've received as the composer's intentions um, from the original performances and stuff, um, do we then run the risk of sort of achieving some sort of like this is the authoritative performance and it shouldn't be done any other way? Is that is that something that we should be looking out for and trying to avoid or is that fine? Automatically, you, you would, because there's, there are never going to be two performances that are identical, even if you try to be. I've heard many performers who try to imitate the, the interpretations of their favourite performers, and they all sound completely different without, mm. without knowing it. And even the same performer, I've never heard the same performer play the same piece twice, even if they're trying to, and most don't anyway. You're in a different room, a different acoustic, with diff- often with different instruments every time, and a different audience, and something's going to come differently. And there's, there's a big range. It's, I think when I'm doing an edition, it's very important for me to lay out the information that the composer has left the performers, whatever the reliable information is, to filter out or to put a warning against any information that I think might set you off on the wrong track and ruin the, ruin the piece, like the the tempo markings that made this quintet go wrong. Mm. So clarify what's there, but then you leave it to the performer's intelligence. They have to. You can't say, you must, you must do this, because if they don't like what they're doing, it won't sound good. Mm. They've, they've got to enjoy it. So with this quintet, I've left the question open, and some people like to stick in what's become, talking of tradition, what has become an established tradition of playing this piece rather liturgically and very inwardly and making it rather drawn out. It bores me, but some people do like it. Audiences mostly don't. And, and you've come across um, some 
um, resistance to some of these new ways of doing things. Is that correct? You can. In the quintet, I particularly did from some uh, keepers of the sacred temple in in <laughs> Paris. In particular, somebody who's not a musician, who, and I see better now where that person was coming from, somebody who likes to be able to put everything in its box in documentary terms, mm. but is not primarily a musician, didn't understand what the issues were on the page, had analysed the piece, and I think likes to sit likes to hear the music but to sit slowly hearing it through and he's got nothing else to do and you can do that with a piece like that but in a concert it won't work what, what strikes you about foray why why does this interest you so much i think because his music still isn't always recognized as how good it is he had a huge influence and also because funnily enough despite a couple of very good people teaching it there have been all sorts of funny performance traditions his music's often regarded as I think because of the attractive surface in French music, because there, there's always this nice sensuous surface, people tend to bask in it and then think it's pink and fluffy and then slow it down. And a lot of his music, more than almost anybody, is played much slower than he intended it. And we, we have a lot of chapter and verse from this, for this from people who worked with him. They all said every time they worked with him, his tempi surprised them. They were always faster than theirs and it always made sense. But uh, he, thinks in, he thinks in long spans, so you have to start a piece thinking well ahead, and if you're too slow, you'll get bogged down in the small detail and, and, and sort of sink. But of course, it's not to be rushed, so you have, you have to judge it. But also, you have to know the idiom. We, we are brought up in much more in German music, so if you're given a piece by Brahms or Mendelssohn, you can look at it for half a minute, and you've pretty soon got a rough idea of what the natural tempo for it is. With Fauré, because of partly because he's so modern, partly because of the way he uses counterpoint and the different layers going on in the music, we're not so used to it. We haven't been brought up with it. And it's very easy to go off in bar one in what seems like an all right tempo, but something that won't sustain itself after a while. And we have, we have to spot that. It's also part, partly to do with the language itself, isn't it? Yes. Every, lang- every country's language rolls into its music. Mm. And the French language famously is has a rhythm of its own it doesn't have the strong tonic accents of german italian or english and this the music of course is has its um, has its very marked meters in Fauré too he's he plays around with meter a lot the where the accents are are very variable if he's going three in a bar i think this is southern mediterranean man in him he came from the south he'll go one two three one two three one two three one, two, three. He'll be playing around with putting in what are called mm. hemiolas yeah. there, so you you augment the rhythms, and you'll get cross beats that go across the bar. And the, although the bar lines are regular in the music, what's really going on inside that is varying, and you have to catch that. You have to keep it in time so that you become aware of that. If we bask in it and just think nice harmonies can't make sense of the the rhythm, then it loses its sense of direction, which is often what happens. Cool. Thanks very much, Roy. You're very welcome. So that was Roy Howitt, the uh, esteemed Scottish pianist and musicologist. 
If you haven't read any of your stuff, I really highly recommend it. Just Google Roy Howard, you'll find all good articles, like, interviews, recordings as well. We should put that out there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's recorded some stuff. <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's next? Well, it's time for a minute of mimicry. So, it's time for this week's Minute of Mimicry, and in the studio with us this week is Eliza Shepard, who is a flute player. Uh, Eliza, take it away. The mimicry begin. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we remind listeners what this is for fresh listeners? So like, the minute of mimicry is about 30 seconds. Of our guest, followed by 30 seconds of myself and Kenny attempting to replicate it as closely as possible on two clarinets at the same time. Because that was always going to be a good idea from the start. What, what was the approximate key? Uh, Just start F. Start F. Great, here we Perfect. Jazz. Couldn't have been closer to the original. Yeah, it was exactly the same, as always, because we're really good at that. Hello, Eliza. Hi, Eliza. Hi, guys. So you're one of the first-year flute players at Annam. Now, um, for flute players um, listening, um, you might have been able to pick this up, but for non-flute players, uh, that was not ordinarily how the flute is played. Eliza, can you tell us a little bit about what you just did? Uh, so what I did is a pe- I played a piece by Robert Dick, uh, an American flute player who I just studied with in New York, actually. Um, and he's known for his work with extended techniques, um, so you might have heard a couple of interesting things. But another thing he's known for is his creation the glissando head joint which is what I played the piece on I actually have um, notated this piece for glissando head joint because originally it's just for a regular straight flute um, so it's so, so what is a yeah, yeah. For, for our for, for our dear listeners out there what exactly is a glissando in in short it's a slightly elongated head joint that has a slidey bit no 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 I mean like what is a glissando oh oh sorry sorry um Uh, I'll just demonstrate one. So it's a slide between two notes. And that was all done without moving my fingers, just simply moving the head joint in and out. So... So, so just to quickly describe, uh, a glissando head joint, it looks like uh, an elongated regular head joint with um, the bit that you blow into is able to move from side to side via little straps on the other side. That's and that, that, the makes, that makes the tubes uh, longer or shorter as you yep. slide it. Yeah, great. Yep. Now, For example. This, when, when was this created? 
a few years ago? Uh, 2003, it was premiered at the National Flute Association. Because um, we're talking about tradition in this episode, and uh, this is definitely untraditional. Mm, yes. Um, Very untraditional. Yeah, Rob- Robert's known for his uh, breaking of the rules, let's say. Um, he likes to push the extremes in music. Um, I guess he looked into expanding the flute more um, in a way that you can just push it further and further. So he went to the extremes with just the straight flute and then went, all right, I want more because some of the glissandi, if you take away the slidey head joint, there's, there's holes, there's gaps, wow. whereas this can fill That's it really in. So it's just a straight tone the way, whole way through, as you would have heard from the example before. Cool. It sounds great. So, Eliza, being mm. in your first year at Anam, how are you finding it? Um, it's, it's very different. I came from the uh, Australian National University and there the music department had slowly diminished. So it's really Musical amazing. Pun. Yeah. It's <laughs> Good job. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's really amazing to be surrounded by such musicians, such as yourselves, um, which I know points Who? of flattery. <laughs> Looking behind us. <laughs> yeah, where, where? Um, it's just great to be part of a community that wants to do music rather than wants to do it as a hobby, which it's, it feels like high school back in drama class. You know, people just did drama or art because it was, you know, a bludge. Mm. So it's really nice to be somewhere where people just want to work and work their butts off and and get really good results. I can always already feel different, more musical. Mm. Yeah, that, that's what the building does to you a little bit, isn't it? It's <laughs> inside your head. That's what what does? That's what the building does to you. The building, yep. does it? Never leaves. I think we get inside <laughs> the building more than it. Yeah. Well, literally we get inside. Oh, okay, yeah. good. So, Eliza, I hear that you uh, have done a little bit of uh, musical theatre. I have. Or a lot, maybe. Yeah, I've done over 40 productions. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. wow. Also quite non-traditional for the classical music. Yeah, yeah. it's um, very interesting to be part of um, musical theatre from the side of being on stage as opposed to being in the pit for, yeah, for a band. Yeah, so being on stage must be running through your veins, basically. Yeah, oh, I love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really good. I've... I've I've learned a lot through and I appreciate musicians even more from being on stage and being able to say, look, I've also done that job. So quite a holistic understanding of the entire performance process. You know? Exactly. It's good fun. Yeah, if I, if I could, I'd love to do musical theatre, well, be able to combine my love for musical theatre, singing, dancing, acting and flute playing, but that job has not been found yet. So well, Maybe you can make that job. Maybe I can make that job. <gasps> we look forward to that. Yeah. We, we better wrap this up because I think we're going to get kicked out of the building in a second. Yeah. <laughs> but Eliza, thank you very much for joining us. Thank no so worries, much, guys. Thanks for having me. Cool. So, Kenny, what's going on at Adam? So, straight after the big break in July, we're into recital season again. That's right. So, this is the third of our four or five or even six, I think, repertoire seasons this year. Um, a period at Anna which is always quite busy, um, but some of the most rewarding weeks of the year, I find, where uh, every Anna student will have the opportunity to present an hour of music that they've chosen with it. And their, that's solo repertoire. That's, that's right, that's solo and, and, and some chamber repertoire too, of course, um, curated by by each student. So I've, I've got one coming up in the next one and I'll be playing some, some Brahms trio, which I'm really excited about and some other stuff. Um, but do check the Anam website, anam.com.au, which will have all the details of every single recital that'll be coming up. Uh, there's some stuff that you, I guarantee you won't hear live anywhere else in Australia, let alone the world in some cases. So it's, it's well worth coming along to. Yep. Uh, and the week after recital week, we have our project with Simone Young. This uh, Simone Young, the incredible Australian conductor who uh, was the former director of the Hamburg Opera and has mm-hmm. recently moved to England, I think. Yeah. Our pro- she comes to Annam pretty much 
every year. Has done for a couple of years now, yeah. She really likes us. <laughs> it's because we're great. Um, anyway. And really funny. Yeah, yeah but um, we'll definitely try and get her into the studio at some point to talk to her about a thing or two. And we've got some really exciting repertoire in that concert, including Schoenberg's arrangement of uh, the Brahms Piano Quartet and Schoenberg's Transfigured Night and also uh, Mahler's uh, Rucket Leader. That's going to be an incredible concert. And we'll have a lot more to say about that in probably the next episode of the Upload Download. Yeah. But, um, but set the date aside. So we're talking about the 19th of August there. That's going to be at the Recital Center. This is our gala concert. So I'd encourage you maybe to book ahead if you can, because that always sells out. Yeah, that's usually a pretty, pretty important concert that we have. And that's what's going on in Adam. That's what's going on in Adam. That brings us to the end of episode three of the Upbow Download. Um, thank you for listening, uh, all those who've stayed with us so far. If you've listened via iTunes, please do subscribe to us um, and leave us a comment if you like. You, we can be reached now, by the way, uh, at our new email address, which, which is, is podcasts at anm.com.au. So, or any comments, queries, or feedback, please send them through to us. Yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on how this is all going. If you hate it, we'd love to hear that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, yeah. So until next time, listeners, I've been Luke Carbon. And I am once again Kenny Keppel. From the Australian National Academy of Music, this is the Up, O, Down, Low. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.